0: Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Trello Bits. TrelloBits is a cybersecurity company that offers both open source analysis software and consultation services to the blockchain industry. Since their entrance into blockchain technology from the traditional cybersecurity field, they've released a suite of high quality smart contract analysis products to the community free of charge and worked with many of the top companies in the industry to improve their security stance. This episode's product spotlight is on Slither, TrelloBits' Solidity Static Analyzer Framework written in Python 3. Slither parses your Solidity contracts and compiles them into an intermediate representation language called Slith IR, which enables simple, high precision analysis. It then runs a large suite of vulnerability detectors, prints detailed visual information about your contract, and also provides an API to easily write custom analysis checks. On top of that, it's fast with an average execution time of less than a second. Not only does Slither enable smart contract developers to define vulnerabilities, but it also helps enhance their code comprehension. It's as easy to use. Helps you figure out what you're doing and helps you write better, more secure code. To find out more, visit trillabits.com. That's T R A I L O F B I T S.com. Or you can follow them on Twitter at Trillabits. Enjoy the show, guys. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. This is episode 40. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, and my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, everybody, Colin. Hello, everybody, Colin. Nicely done. Today, we have Leon Horm from, what do you say, L4? Yeah,
1: L4 and the counterfactual project.
0: counterfactual project that's kind of mixed up a little bit there. Uh, uh, we, we've been trying to get you on for quite a while, because I, I, over the last couple episodes, you've been doing a lot of um, scaling discussions, and this is clearly appropriate for that. Do you want to start by giving our audience a quick introduction as to who you are, how you got introduced into like the blockchain space, and what L4 is and counterfactual is?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so my name is Liam. I'm uh, mostly, I would say, kind of an engineer and overall contributor to the scaling research groups in the Ethereum world, uh, I I guess I originally came into the the blockchain space from more of like a Silicon Valley startup background, where for, you know, multiple years after I, I left university, I was working on on basically different startups, one was a location analytics startup, kind of helping figure out where you should put physical stores, uh, and then there were a few others that uh, basically were run out of the startup uh, venture studio called Atomic. And I, I had actually this, like, this kind of fortunate experience where in university, at the University of Waterloo, I was, I was literally classmates with Vitalik. Um, he was like the inventor of Ethereum. And so I kind of was early on was kind of following what his, he was up to personally and was very interested in the project. So I kind of had a really good understanding of it. But I was looking at it from the lens of this is a phenomenal technology. What can it do to you know, actually – what kind of businesses can be built in, around it or using it And so I was always trying to figure out what that could be. Um, Basically, I think in in early 2017, I was trying to answer that specific question. And I just asked Vitalik, what are the most important things right now in Ethereum? How are we going to make this actually like a viable future uh, for like how will this technology actually have an impact in the future? And the most important thing back then and still today was just scaling it. And so he just answered like the three most important things are proof of stake research, sharding and state channels. And I had never heard of state channels before, but uh, there seemed to be a lot of work being done in sharding and proof of stake. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do a bit of a deep dive into this. This will be like a small foray. Uh, uh-huh. see what we can do there. And yeah, pretty, pretty quickly I realized it was much larger than that. I got introduced to Jeff Coleman, who's kind of the inventor of the entire concept. Uh, he wrote a blog post in 2015 and he spoke at DevCon one about the concept of state channels. And he basically Liz lectured me every single day for a few weeks about in the entirety of his idea of State Channels, and I was kind of just very hooked. And so while initially kind of looking at it from like what business can we start, I just got so deep into actually looking into this specific research problem of State Channels that I just I kind of just lost the interest in this business aspect and just focused entirely on building that. And so over the course of the past, I would guess year and a half, two years, I've just been entirely focused on taking what was in Jeff's head at the time of the idea of State Channels and translating that into a production technology stack that can actually make it easy for any developer to use the technique, because again, from my narrative, Vitalik was basically saying the most important thing is to build to make Ethereum useful is to scale it, and one of those is state channels. And so I've just been trying to basically get that to be at the point where people can actually use it.
0: That's so interesting. That's based on that, play. based on that history and the, I guess, very unique experience you had with with getting like a one-on-one primer with the person who basically you know kind of came up with the, with the initial idea. I would like if you could describe as best or at least maybe to like a a a layman what a state channel is in your mind
1: yeah so uh, definitely it's been this term that's been thrown around in a lot of really confusing ways i think the easiest way to describe it is that the reason why we need a blockchain is that you fundamentally have this assumption that you don't trust anybody else ever and so we need this global database that is updated by a some kind of consensus mechanism that allows you to put in a transaction without having to trust or discuss anything with anybody, and you can rely that this database will be updated using basically, you know, the the amalgamation of techniques that are used in blockchains, such that your transaction will be included. And that's basically how blockchains work: you just put in a transaction, and you can rely that no one's going to be able to censor that transaction from going to the chain and updating the state. However, that's like the worst case scenario, right? In some cases, you can you can change it such that if you have the ability to just interact with people without having to not trust anybody. But if anyone ever does act maliciously, then in the worst case, in that scenario, go to the chain. That would basically speed things up dramatically because instead of every single time going to the chain for every state update, you can just communicate with the people that need to care about the state update and do that much quicker because you don't need to involve everybody and involve all this consensus mechanisms that blockchains add. You can just speak to the local people that care about it. But you can have the same trust the same trust guarantees because if ever any of those people are malicious, you can go back to the chain and get your money out. So it just changes it from changes blockchain use cases from being like the average case is really slow and expensive because you have to use the chain, to the worst case is slow and expensive because you have to use the chain. And the way it does that is that instead of you know you holding on to your money in your own Ethereum account your own ETH or your own ERC20 tokens or whatever it might be that you have control over, what you do is you line up a fixed group of people that you know you're going to be involved with over the next few iterations of this application. You know The, the common example is a bar tag where you know you're going to be with the bar for a certain amount of time. You line them up, you put all of your state, which could be ETH or ERC20 tokens or any state that you have control over, into a single contract and then off chain, you sign updates with each other. Literally, just coordinating so that every person involved in the arrangement signs off in every message, basically, so that you, as long as you have unanimous consent among that fixed group, can at any point in time distribute that state, the ETH or the, the tokens, back onto the blockchain. So it's kind of like a it's kind of a group account.
2: Hey. So that's, that's great, but uh, can you maybe differentiate between state channels and just payment channels a little bit? Because they're yeah. kind of similar in the way that they function. It's basically the same thing, but state channels as the concept that you're proposing is more generalized. And so you use the term general state channels and maybe you can yeah. uh, differentiate.
1: So the history there is that the init- the first time the term like channels were used were basically, I think, to introduce the, the Lightning Network. And back then the only function you could do, you know, on Bitcoin specifically is, is send, right? The function is, I want to send money. And so it's naturally, it was naturally called payment channels, but the analogous technique on Ethereum, because you have more ways in which you can update state than just the send function, which is what Bitcoin can do. You can have kind of arbitrary functions that update state. We refer to them as state channels. And historically what's happened is that people took the concept of payment channels the idea that you put money together and you send it amongst each other using that one send function. And they've just transited the exact same feature set onto Ethereum and they call those payment channels on Ethereum. So the idea is you lock in ETH into a contract and then you sign messages pertaining to a sense of how the ETH is distributed amongst each other and they call those payment channels. But the reason why we called our technique generalized state channels is that we're not trying to just replicate payment channels on Ethereum. We're trying to replicate the general technique of banding and group together to update the state of the blockchain on Ethereum. And if you take that approach, you can do an enormous number of really interesting um, things because Ethereum doesn't limit you in the same way that Bitcoin does. So as an example, if you look at what SpankChain has built or if just in general you look at a payment channel, it's very, it's very limited in what you can do. You can send money back and forth. If you look at what Raiden has done, they expanded that a little bit and they said not only can you send ETH back and forward, but you can also send ERC20 tokens backwards and forwards, And that was the next kind of step up from a payment channel. And then if you go one step above that, and you look at what this company called Funfair has built, they called their thing Fate Channels, which is more of a marketing term. But they made it so that not only are you updating the balances of ERC20 tokens, you're actually updating the state of a specific casino-based game. So my role on a roulette wheel and the outcome of the spinning of the wheel, that's the state you're updating. We're taking it to the absolute like extreme that you can do in Ethereum, which is the state you're updating is not hard-coded into any contract. It's just arbitrary Ethereum transactions, which is a tuple, like two value data, just abstractly. And what you can do if you like, go to that level of abstraction is you can start to update state on the blockchain in any way you want. And so what we've done is we've kind of created this model around the state that we call app, like off-chain applications, so that if you put money into a state channel, you can begin to instantiate these off-chain applications that pertain to any smart contract. So that might be a tic-tac-toe game, it might be a payment channel again where you're just updating balances, or it might be a chess game, or it might be a derivatives contract. It doesn't matter, as long as you can write it in solidity in a contract, we've kind of included that as a type of way with which you can use a state channel, but not not the only way. So we don't call these like tic-tac-toe channels, or chess channels, or You know, derivatives contract channels, we just call them generalized state channels where the types of applications you can use can be defined by the developer. So that's kind of the leap that we've taken. So instead of just payments and tokens or specific games, it's artificial, arbitrary state that we then provide a framework for encapsulating within a specific developer's interest or what they want to build, if that makes sense.
2: So, yeah, no, that's great. So what is the life cycle of such a game? So the the reason I'm asking this specifically now is because there was a particular challenge that uh, when I saw the SBC talk that Patrick McCrory gave um, when I was in Stanford, uh, he, uh, he gave a talk about Battleship, and he identified some certain problems with that particular game. Um, it was a very good example of something that seems like it should work but doesn't. And I'm kind of wondering how you guys are tackling those challenges. Are you, and I'm assuming you're familiar with those problems um, for our audience. Basically, it's a it's a challenge issue. So does somebody want to really lock up their ETH for 24 hours if somebody's messing up, you know what I mean? Or if somebody's not, not compliant or playing by the rules of the game. There's a lot of ways you could grief somebody in such a game like that. And they found that they couldn't find a solid solution for fixing that. Uh, I'm wondering what kind of research you're doing in that area.
1: Yeah, I think... There is, there is this fundamental limit that currently there's, there's no way around this in any kind of channel or just in general any kind of off-chain construction, which is the easiest way to describe it is the speaker-listener fault equivalence problem, which is that if you are in a channel with anybody else, or just in general you're in an off-chain relationship with anybody else, and you sign a message that your counterparty is expected to countersign, but they don't, There's no way for any third party specifically there's no way for a blockchain to differentiate between that's the person never having received the message or um that person intentionally not replying to you forcing you to go to chain so there's no way to say that if someone's not replying to you that they are acting in bad faith so because of that specific fundamental problem there's always it's always possible for someone to like you said grief you by forcing you to go to the chain so The goal of Layer 2 Systems is to make it, in my opinion, one of the goals of Layer 2 Systems is to make it so that it's impossible, or at least as cheap as possible in those scenarios for you, the honest party, to resolve the channel and get your money back out if your counterparty is being malicious. I think what Patrick's study did is they said that at the present, if you were to implement it using presently known techniques or at least presently popular techniques, the griefing costs of a counterparty and in the average case of a game with the fees that you have to pay in the case that you get like griefed end up being ridiculous in proportion to small types of average games. And maybe a, a regular consumer that would make, maybe want to play a blockchain game for a small amount of money would be willing to pay for the benefits of just playing the game off chain. So I, I would say with that analysis, it's a useful analysis, but there's two conclusions that I would come to it come from it. The first is that probably we're not going to want state channels to be things that humans do with each other. Like it probably doesn't make as much sense for me as a human to like load up a website and open up a channel and just manually click buttons and use my state channel that way as much as it makes sense for bots to do it. Because the reason is humans have all kinds of error scenarios where they just, they leave, they, they're gone for too long of a time. They forget the computer crashes that lead to, crash scenarios very frequently. I think it makes much more sense for bots to be using state channels in different kinds of relationships where they can be much more reliable. And additionally, they can provide guarantees of their uptime that other people can account for, such that the, the scenarios where someone does go offline, it's a software error and it's very infrequent. I think that's one of the first conclusions that come from it. The second conclusion is that I think in, in his study, there's just a number of techniques that you can use to really minimize that griefing cost. That so far no one has really done, I think, like an excellent job of building uh, a solution for. We're we're trying to go in that direction. Just that no matter what the type of griefing scenario is, the actual cost that you incur as the person being griefed is is the absolute like extreme limit of uh, in terms of the minimum the amount that you could pay. So I think there's still a lot of wiggle room for Patrick's study. But additionally, I think it's also true that you want to make sure that you are playing against somebody that's extremely unlikely to grief you because it's in their incentive and it should always be in their incentive to not grief you, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of optimization room, but he did touch on a, a bit of a fundamental limit and he exposed it in a bit of a grandiose way, I'd say.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty interesting, actually, the way he, he talked about it. Um, I, I, I see what you're saying with the bots, but you do not see a use case at all for humans to want to interact with these things on a more personal level. <laughs>
1: I do certainly see a use case. I just think that because
2: at- like bank chain to me is a perfect use case. Like even though they're not general at this point, uh, sounds like they're closer to payment. Um, it, it's it seems like. Uh, people would want to do on-demand purchasing for low cost and I don't think necessarily a plasma channel is always the best choice well, it's, I
0: think it's more yeah. along the lines of like state channels are really useful for when you when you're in scenarios where everyone is incentivized to work together all the time if you have scenarios where there's a potential for grieving or someone to, to back out of the scenario and the rest of playing out that scenario gets expensive or, or, or lengthy then state channels may not be the right case but like scenarios where like the odds of those things happening are very low it may be it may be worthwhile.
1: I think also that there. What one important point is that the design space within which you can operate in to make types of applications where everybody's incentivized to behave correctly is still not that well explore, explored and there's a lot of optimizations to be made still. Like in our, the way that we like at L4 and with the counterfactual project, the way that we approach things is we want to make it so that for any arbitrary application, it is it's the maximally the incentives are built in such a way that it's always in your incentive to just keep on going and to keep playing the to keep using the application, updating state and behaving in a predictable manner, because the not doing that, really, it's in such a way that at every minute time step of, of state updates, it's it's just it's it's always in your it's always in your favor just to cooperate, and if it's ever not, that is simply because of some externality that is something that blockchain simply can't capture, like the the example would be that either you just, you fundamentally have a, a hatred for your counterparty that makes you want to just grief them, even though you might incur a bunch of cost yourself for griefing them and you'll lose money and they'll lose money, you benefit in some way from just griefing them because you, you feel satisfied from that, right? That's an example of an externality. But again, one of the reasons why, that's, like, that's a human thing, right? One of the reasons why I think computer-based systems that do this is that they will not have those types of externalities Additionally as things become more anonymous and private and you don't really know who you're dealing with it's just simply an economical cost. It's just simply you look at the problem. If I cooperate, I get paid and everything will go smoothly. If I don't cooperate, I lose money. That's the only decision that you have to make. It'll always be the case you cooperate. So that, that's the that's the design space that we're kind of operating in that we think we want to maximize.
2: So uh, you've obviously then you you must have mapped out like a, a ton of like scenarios where you need to mitigate that kind of risk. Um, maybe you could go through those scenarios for our audience so we could kind of understand uh, what that risk looks like.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things end up being like highly specific, but like, one way of looking at it is um, you, you actually need to look at the types of ways that someone could brief you. So in a state channel, you always have a situation where you are signing an update, you send a message to your counterparty, and you're expecting them to reply. They have a couple of op- options, um, or rather, you have a couple of options if they don't reply. You can either go to chain and basically force your counterparty to make a move, which means that you have to now incur the gas costs and that sucks for you. Or you can wait it out for a certain amount of time. But in that case, you're, you're incurring kind of this opportunity cost because now your capital is being locked up in a way that you did not initially want it to be locked up in because you can't actually use it anymore because your counterparty is unresponsive. So in both cases, you're kind of incurring a cost. So I guess one one of the ways in which we looked at this design space and found a solution is that it's a pretty straightforward solution is that if ever you get in this situation, you, the person that has to go to the chain, can initially, when you set up the channel, have agreed upon with the counterparty that if this ever happens, we'll split the gas costs in half. So if the other person is not replying to you, you going to the chain is not like you just paying all of that gas costs and your out of pocket. It's actually splitting it with the counterparty. So you'll pay half, they'll pay half. So the Cost of someone not replying to you, from their point of view, actually is not just now this person goes to the chain, then I have to wait. It's actually I am myself paying money for not responding. So that's one way we can slightly change the the incentives, but um, that's just one of many. Another another one I guess I would add is that uh, there's this there's this problem that sometimes talked or talked about where it's possible that if you have these long lasting channels with lots of applications and lots of state updates that someone might go to the chain and just put all of them on at the exact same time, kind of just flooding the chain with channel closed commands, basically, or challenges. Uh, one way that we mitigate that is part of the protocol that we've designed is very periodically we kind of do like a bit of a garbage collection. So as often as is humanly possible, we, we countersign things saying that if ever you were to go to chain with any of this set of old states, this one single command that we've signed will nullify all of them. So it's kind of like you have this garbage collection, a garbage collection process built into the protocol so that every few updates, you're kind of recycling all the old stuff that no longer needs to be disputed individually and it can be disputed in mass. And so that's one additional way that we've added something to the protocol to handle this. But again, these are kind of on the fringes. And as, as we develop the protocol and as more people use it, the hope is that it's just simply the, the case that no matter how large these things scale, you always have an easy exit that's cheap for you and incur the cost for your counterparty if ever there's malicious activity. So again, the goal is just make it simple and cheap and and make the attack vectors as small as possible.
0: That's interesting. I When I first learned about Y'all's implementation of state channels uh, a while ago, I was under the impression that um, the way that it differentiated itself was that it never initiated the state on-chain and only basically um, set things up so that anyone could uh, initiate it when they needed to so like when you start thinking about state channels you have an initiation phase where everyone basically puts all of their assets that they would like to put into the channel into into a transaction they broadcast that the channel is opened and then they interact with each other ad nauseum until they're done with whatever they're doing and then they when they're done they agree they publish whatever the end state is and what something that l4 was doing or counterfactual was doing was basically saying we're not going to do the initiation transaction. We're just going to set things up so that at any point during our, our discussion, we can publish the current state to the transaction that changes things appropriately. Is that no longer the case, or did I have it wrong uh, initially?
1: Uh, well, that's certainly still the case. I think and I think what's happened over the course of the past like years, we've been working on this, is that more other people have been following the same kind of technique. Um, we've actually I think we've I think we've gotten it to be the absolute most like minimal API. So the only API that we actually have on-chain in the honest scenario, so if, if there's no dispute, which is a, or not really dispute, but protocol deviation, mm-hmm. it's, it's handled in a separate way. In the honest case, the only two operations that you ever see on-chain are deposit and withdraw, and that's it. And this is also why I think it's a good mental model to think about state channels as kind of this, this group activity, because you deposit into the group and you withdraw from the group, and those are the only actions you ever need to do. Everything else is just signatures off-chain. So we never actually, in the honest case, put any state on chain or even reference the application that's being used on chain at all. So if you and I, for example, wanted to open up a state channel, what we would do is just I would put in whatever I want to put into the state channel. You would put in whatever you want to put into the state channel. That's all you'd see on chain. And then off chain, you'd speak the counterfactual protocol, which, you know, the software that we have does all of that automatically for you. And we would begin saying, OK, let's do a toe game. Let's set up a, a contract for difference. Let's agree on this oracle at some point in the future, just figuring out how our money gets distributed. And we do all kinds of agreements, just specifically between us. And then, you know, that might update our balances that we perceive between each other. And if at any point in time, I, I want to take some money out. I just go to the, the chain and say, hey, I want to withdraw this amount out. You would countersign that because you were being honest. And then some money would leave. So just put the money in, take the money out, and in between, you're using this off-chain protocol, which, you know, is, is designed as a way to be secure and minimally, you know, minimal attack vectors and things like this. So yeah, definitely, we've designed it to be the most bare bones uh, interface as possible. We, we actually like one thing we want to do is because it's such a such a basic interface, and the only actual on-chain function that you need is the ability for us to agree on things and execute a transaction, which is basically a multi-sig what we actually want to do is try to get state channels itself, the API for that built into like the actual core protocol of like at least the core like json RPC that Ethereum exposes and have, have the multi-sig itself be a primitive on Ethereum. So in an ideal world, all possible multisigs already exist. We just put money in and out of them as we, as we will and use the state channel protocol whenever the money's in there. That's the, the, the I think that's like the optimum end result of channels. It's just a, Group protocol for dealing with
0: money that would be that'd be quite a wonderful thing because not only are multi-sigs are a wonderful thing to have as a primitive but they that that having a protocol like that with a minimal API um, generalizes what can be done with a with a, uh, a multi-sig account quite well and really really sets the tone for what the blockchain is actually used for, which is just the, the, you know the end-all truth of the handling of money. The actual yep. business logic associated with applications businesses whatever can be done off chain in its own trust environment and not necessarily the trustless one that is blockchain
1: yeah yeah and i really do i really do hope this does start to happen and i think we should one thing that we should be doing is trying to rally a bit more in the ethereum like internals and the core protocol development to try and get these things plugged in like this it, we have a, like a track record of this working which is like for example with the create2 opcode we pushed pretty hard for that because one thing that that gives us is that you have deterministic addressing for all multisigs, So you don't actually need to create the multi-sig on chain. <coughs> and so we've been able to do this before by getting an opcode actually merged into the main Ethereum spec. So I think most people underestimate that Ethereum is willing to adopt things that make things better. So yeah, I'm hoping that we can do that in the future.
2: So can you tell us a little more about what uh, it takes to build this uh, from a team perspective, from a design perspective. What what do you actually, what is the, uh, what does your experiments look like? Like how did this start and then how, what has it evolved into and uh, what, you know, what does the code right. look like?
1: Um, so yeah, so one of the things that I had learned from having been doing businesses in the past, the startups is that it's extremely important to have the right incentives for everybody involved in any, any particular project. And so, Right at the start, when we started working on state channels, I kind of asked myself, is this a business? Uh, are people going to pay for this? Is you know Should we run a hub? Should we, in some way, maybe we should do consulting or something like that? But it, nothing really made much sense because it, a, a, the fundamental way that we look at this whole problem is that this should be a primitive in Ethereum. It's a basic data structure and a basic protocol that just doesn't itself need to be branded or in any way done in uh its own like unique way. And so, so the way that we approached it is this should be an open source project. We should run it kind of like what you look in the web community, like React or like, or Ember or things like that. And so um, basically the way I looked at it is just like, let's get a bunch of good research out there, meet other people that are interested in this problem and try and structure a project that can get all of them working together uh, without compromising on, you know, who owns it or who has control over it simply <coughs> simply trying our best to make this uh, its own open source project. So that's how we approached it. We actually have now L4, my company, um, developers that we have basically being paid to work on this. And additionally, another company called Prototypal that is also paying developers to work on this. And as we've gone about this over the past year, we've also attracted a handful of other independent developers just interested in the problem. And so everything we do is it's public, it's it's all open source. Anyone can come in and we'll help them get up to speed with it. Um, we also would love we also love partnering with other projects, for example, with PISA that Patrick McCoy is working on. And just genuinely speaking, we're just trying to structure this in such a way that we get the best quality protocol to help Ethereum basically lead the charge of you know layer two protocols and, and development of applications in layer two. Do it in a way that is cohesive so that people can learn from what we're doing and actually build on top of it and never really deviate from that core goal. At some point in the future, maybe some businesses will emerge, but right now we just want to build something that goes right into like, a, this nestles right there like comfortably into the Ethereum protocol. So let state channels can just be a common good that everyone benefits from. Uh, in the meantime, you know, because blockchains have this kind of this treasury notion of that the original, you know, people that launch the chain, the foundations have funds, we're funded by the Ethereum Foundation and it's in everyone's incentive, basically. They want to see Ethereum succeed, they want to see the protocol grow. We ourselves are interested in the technology and we want to see the protocol grow as well. We want it to succeed. And so, you know, we're funded in order to to do exactly that. So that's the way we approach it. At the moment we have, I think in total, there are seven or eight engineers that spend uh, you know, full time or, or very close to full time on actual development of the whole tech stack. and. Yeah, and it seems to be growing. And we have a bunch of people coming all the time that are interested in contributing. And so the goal is just, you know, learn from things like Ember and other open source projects, how you run a community like this and just do our best to see it grow.
2: That makes sense. So I noticed that L4 is called L4 Ventures. Um, and so I guess that is what you were just talking about. What is your relationship with the counterfactual? How do those two enter, uh, how are those two correlated?
1: Yeah, so so L4 is a very interesting company. Basically what it is, is it's myself and, and the others in the company that had a similar kind of passion for Ethereum in this community. And we didn't really know how to monetize or what exactly to do, but we really, really wanted to work on like core protocol development and we really wanted to see it succeed. And so the way we approach it is just teaming up and we'll create different types of ventures, whether they're open source projects or, or other kinds of things I can talk about uh, in a minute that all benefit from being worked on by the same general group. And so what we do right now is we work on counterfactual. And that's the kind of way that we frame it is that we just have engineers that we put full time on counterfactual to help that project grow, but we ourselves don't own it. And we also work on ETH Global, which is basically a hackathon organization that every few months basically we run a large Ethereum hackathon like you may have seen ETH Waterloo or or ETH Buenos Aires or ETH Berlin or ETH India or all, all these different Ethereum hackathons and the goal of those is just get developers into the ecosystem. So again that's another initiative to help the ecosystem grow. Uh, myself and some of my friends and people that are not in L4 but that are also passionate about this that you know I've worked with over the past several years help with it and we do this together. And so it's a really good initiative and some of the people that work in ETH Global also work in Counterfactual and so there's a nice overlap there. So I just, I just I think it's important to understand the separation of concerns with your with regards to everyone's incentive. My incentive is obviously to have my company and the people involved be very happy and be working on meaningful stuff and for the things that we're working on to, to pay them well. But separately, the things that we're working on should lead to a really good end result for the stakeholders involved, which at the moment is mostly the Ethereum community itself. That, you know, by proxy of the foundation is funding this these projects. So with global, we hope that we can get a bunch of developers on board into the ecosystem, and that that'll lead to more interesting things being built, more you know, more users effectively demanding good documentation and good you know scenarios for which the core protocol developers can use for feedback of how to develop the protocol. And then separately with Counterfactual, we hope that we can lead to really useful tools for those exact same developers to build useful applications. So end of the day, it's just like. It's it's our company that we think is doing good for the ecosystem, and the way that we do good is through these projects that we ensure everyone involved with is properly incentivized to work on.
2: So let's talk about counterfactual for a second, because you guys just released a playground, and that's like uh, uh, it's actually going to let people sort of play with this stuff that you're talking about. So maybe you could uh, give a big old announcement and tell us how people can get involved in that.
1: Yeah, definitely. So one of the so my background i guess from startups has always taught me like you need to be able to communicate effectively to people what is the value proposition of what you're working on and what is like the minimum viable product in some way that you can get out that shows that value prop and with this project with state channels the mvp is surprisingly complicated but really that's what the playground is so it's this thing we just released a couple days ago not as a product or anything like that that we're shipping as a as a company but simply as a developer like sandbox environment that shows off all of the technology that we've been working on recently to productionize state channels. So what it is, is it's a website that you can go to, you create an account with the website, and what that does is it creates a state channel between you and a hub, which is something that we're running basically on a Heroku server in the background. And then what you can do is anyone else that's created an account, a state channel with this hub, you can open what's called a virtual channel with them, to play any arbitrary Ethereum-based game or ap- application in general, and the two that we've put on there are tic-tac-toe and this dice-rolling game where the higher of two dice rolls wins some meat, to show off a bit of randomness. So the point of this project, this playground, is so that any person anywhere in the world can just go to this website, which is playground.counterfactual.com. They can load it up, they can use it, and they can see what it means to have you know the power of generalized state channels into a production application which in this case it's just very simple it's you create an account you deposit your money in you do any all this stuff off chain and then whenever you want you can withdraw money out just as I said and instead of it just being you know me talking about it or a presentation in a slide deck whatever it might be it's a tangible production ready app that's running in your browser that you can look look and feel and see what it's like so that's what the playground is and the cool part is everything that's on the playground all the code is open source you can peruse it on our github and you can see how this is all built. Uh, we've taken an approach with development itself such that all the pieces are reasonably modular. So the applications themselves are built with this developer library called cf.js. The the environment called the Playground, has it's, its own environmental environmental container. It kind of mimics a wallet. And in fact, that specific piece of the, of the code is being merged into MetaMask right now to kind of show you what it would look like to have state channels built into your state channel wallet itself. And Additionally, we have this node, which is the core software that runs in the browser. And it's also the same software that we're running in the cloud that is like your state channel node. And of course, all the protocols, the goal is to be able to go to any person and sit down with them and explain why state channels are interesting. And then show them this demo, show them the code and have them say, oh, I see, I get how you can build this. It's not some obscure, complicated research concept anymore. It's It's there, it's in code, it makes sense. You know, now I can begin to either use it or contribute to it in a way that's sane and it makes sense and isn't daunting uh, as most, you know, blockchain research problems tend to be.
2: So are you targeting one specific type of language or platform or like, is there, is, is it just a suite of tools that you can integrate into any project?
1: Yeah. So presently everything is written in TypeScript mostly because, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is it's, you know, it's a very simple developer language people can read and understand. And two is it's very easy to get that running in a node process or in the browser. and from our point of view, in order to show this to people so that they get it, you really want it to be in an environment that they feel comfortable with and familiar with. It's much easier to say, just go to this website than it is to say, download this binary, run it in the terminal in the background, and then open up this thing, and then it's just too complicated. And from one of the things we've seen, for example, with, with with Raiden is that if you want to run your own Raiden node, it's there's this huge Python client, you have to download it, you have to do all these steps. And that small little friction point it just limits the number of people that interact with it. But with this, you go to a website, it's running, like immediately you just load up the website, immediately you now have a state channel wallet that you can put money into. So it's it's a very important way to kind of get people's attention because they can just easily access it. So that, that's honestly, that's the main motivation behind why we built it the way we did so far. I think that as you productionize this to the point where you're gonna have real money and you want this to be extremely performant, you're gonna have different clients that implement the protocol, so there might be like a Rust client that we work on in the future, but again, taking a more of like a startup iterative approach, we don't want to put we don't we don't want to get way ahead of ourselves here. This is still like early early days for blockchains and super early days for state channels. Let's just get something working in an environment that has minimal friction for people to get involved with it. And then when that starts to work and we start to see people wanting to do stuff with it and the use cases get more complicated and have more demands, then have the engineering and the technology begin to follow those those demands and that user feedback versus assuming some kind of extreme end state scenario years down the line and doing that first. So we don't have any particular bias into like how this thing should ultimately get built in the like ideal way. We just want a bias for getting something that works, that shows the functionality in people's hands as soon as possible, and to simplify the actual code itself and the, and the concepts that are used so that it's Easy for any developer to get started with it. Uh, I think perhaps like from our experience with Eth Global running these hackathons, where we have all kinds of new developers all the time getting into the ecosystem. They don't have time to understand all the ridiculous complexity of this of the ecosystem. They just want to know how do I build a decentralized app? How do I do that? Give me like the the getting started guide, the how to, the tutorial, the YouTube video. And so we want to be able to get from where we are to that. Answers to that question as soon as possible. That's like that's what motiv- motivates our our development. Yeah, process.
2: So you're basically trying to do what crypto zombies did for smart contract development, um, for, you know, state channel development. Um, and I yeah. think that means a lot of so, app instance development, I guess you could say, is that a appropriate way to use that term? Yeah, I think
1: I think it's I think it's state channel application development. I I, I don't really like the term DAP, and so we've I've kind of generally avoided using that term, but I, in, in the way that it is. Used in the in the terms of people referring to like Ethereum-based applications, I would just say this is still a DApp. It just happens to be the case that instead of making contract calls every time you want to do a state update, you just make calls to a node and you use our API to do that. So it's the same concept of building a DApp. You just have a different backend API that happens to return things faster and doesn't cost gas. So it's the same general concept. um oh, you, how
2: does, yeah. uh, just out of curiosity, I'm sorry to cut you off, but um, the the Interesting thing that keeps coming up, it came up with Georgios, it came up with Patrick, is that state channels will be a very good alternative to running smart contracts directly on something like a, a, a what's conventionally called a plasma chain. Um, uh, Patrick has another word for it, which my brain is blanking on yet again. Um, what do you, see- commit chain,
0: calls it a commit, commit-
2: chain. Thank you. Uh, what, do, what do you see those two playing in with each other? And how do you think maybe uh, state channels? Uh, so f- for instance, one of the griefing w- ways to grief is incurring a fee cost for a challenge um, by you know withholding the fact that you've received something and then griefing somebody that way. But that's because when you do the on-chain commitments and all that stuff, each, each transaction has a cost associated with it, especially since you're committing state, which is storage cost, which is per 256 bits is, is 20,000, you know, um, uh, uh, uh gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so to offload some of that, some of the things that have been discussed is, is possibly merging the two con or merging is not the right word, using the two concepts of a commit chain, AKA a plasma chain and state channels together so that you could kind of like mitigate that stuff. How do you see that future kind of evolving?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think it's really important to, and, and Patrick does a good job of this in his like, separation of concerns, is, is, is differentiate the two techniques in terms of when they're useful. Um, the easiest way for me to describe it is that with state channels, they're, the, the best case for state channels is when you know specifically who you're gonna be interacting with, and it's not unknown. So it's, it's things like payments between fixed groups of people, it's things like you know, games like tic-tac-toe or contracts where basically the, the participant set is fixed. In any situation where you know who you're gonna be interacting with ahead of time, it's, it's, it's clear. Fate channels are always the best way to go in any situation. Plasma, or just more generally commit chains, are useful for types of applications where you don't know who you're gonna be interacting with ahead of time. So, you know, DEXs are a really good example marketplaces of any kind like this, you know, public commits that you want to say, hey, to the public, this is something I need everybody to understand and be aware of, you know, an order book. That's where Plasma really shines because with state channels, you fundamentally can't expose this external state to the world, it's locked within the fixed group. And that's really it. Like in terms of when you need to decide, should I use Plasma, should I use state channels, or is in general, what's the difference? That's that's like that's fundamentally the difference. It's always mm-hmm. better if you know ahead of time who to work like other
2: at people? any point. Like, do you see them actually like interacting with each other?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think that the way that you're going to interact with them is, I, I I don't think there's any kind of like magical new third type of term that we can coin for the interaction between them. I think it's just, I think the interaction between state channels and plasma is the same as the interaction between state channels and the main chain. The only difference is that if it's state channels on Plasma, you get all the benefits of state channels and all the benefits of Plasma, um, at least for the specific application that you're using with the restrictions of state channels still, if that makes sense. So an example would be if you have a Plasma chain and you have an account on a Plasma chain, then you get this nice benefit that you're probably not gonna pay fees and you don't have to go to the main chain anytime you wanna do anything one thing you can do with state channels is you can open up state channel between your account and any other account on the plasma chain. So that in addition to not having to go to chain for say that, for whatever you're doing in the plasma chain, you also don't need to go to chain or rather you don't need to pay fees for the deposit and the withdraw step, which I mentioned are the only two steps you need to worry about in state channels to begin with. So depositing and withdrawing can become fee-less as well. So that's a nice benefit, right? If you have a plasma chain, then Creating a state channel is essentially free, and there's no reason not to do it in that case. But I think it's important to make sure that you understand these are two distinct solutions which happen to work well with each other, but that both offer distinct benefits compared to using the main chain individually. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, they're isolated logically from each other, so that it's important to make sure that we, we understand that they are two separate development paths but they do have this sort of like correlative, like we, we probably should be working together. So they're all compatible with each other. So if there's a standard for state chains and there's a standard for Plasma, Plasma should probably implement the standard for state chains as well, so that it can get all the benefits of this, uh, sorry, right. state, state channels as well, so it can get all the benefits of that.
1: Yeah, we actually have a pretty cool project that we're, we haven't announced yet that um, we're just embarking on now, uh, which is effectively doing like precisely that is ensuring that kind of leading plasma chain developers or, or more generally speaking that the standards that are being implemented here with plasma chains have the ability to support channels out of the box. The most recent development in plasma chains, which is this predicate technique, which is basically the idea that for any given coin in a plasma chain, you have a different exit game. So if you have a coin that represents say an 20 token, or if it represents, maybe it's CryptoKitty, whatever it might be, when you actually go to chain, there's a different mechanism for how you distribute that back to whoever it is that owns it. And so what we've developed is a predicate that works for state channel-based assets. So that's basically a multi-sig predicate. So most important thing being that if you have some coin that's on a plasma chain, you have the ability to say that this specific coin actually represents something that is owned by multiple people and it use this multi-sig predicate for that. Um, the predicate kind of terminology is uh coined basically by this plasma group team and you can see all of their code as well which is open source and so that's the first half the second half is with counterfactual because the actual framework that we've designed can store arbitrary state again like eth or new rc20 token or 721 token or or literally anything because our, our core primitive is just an ethereum transaction what we're what we're doing is we're building an example counterfactual app which uses plasma cash coins as the actual state that you have uh, under your state channel's control. And so one of the cool things that we're gonna be able to ship in the next little while after we build all of this is on the playground, probably where we'll put this, an application where you actually deposit money into a plasma chain, but then you begin to interact with other people that are also in a state channel that's connected to that plasma chain to do any of these games. So like Tic-Tac-Toe or High Roller or any other game that we have on the demo, you can not be betting ETH, but you can actually be betting Plasma Cash Coins. And the cool thing is that, again, like I mentioned, the deposit and the withdraw step will be instant. So the entire experience will not involve the Ethereum chain at all. Like You won't have to do any transactions to MetaMask, which is really cool. So we're already embarking on this kind of development roadmap at the moment.
2: I'm very happy to hear that. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, I have something on that one. It's kind of like... Uh... I like to ask this question to a lot of people who we have on who are, who are looking at the kind of the fundamental protocols and the, and the layers of the stack that end up serving various applications to end users how do you see the end user eventually interacting with this technology do you see it as completely obfuscated from the end user and they experience the same thing they do with centralized applications or do you see a fundamentally different way in which they interact with things and if so like what are the differentiators of why this is important to do in the first place?
1: Yeah, so I think that all of this stuff ends up just becoming an API that you call in an application, the same way any other any other API is called, and it just happens to be an API that offers you a very specific benefit, which is that for things that have to do with state that you control personally, your own, you know, ether your your funds, whether it's ether token or some other state that you care about that you now have access to because of, you know, basically blockchains, you can trustlessly interact with that state through some logic via this API. But it's the same way that you would call an API to update a database record on a centralized website or some company. It just happens to be the case that this API works regardless of any particular company. It just works using all of these protocols that we developed. So I think at the end of the day, all we really need to do is provide a dead simple way for any existing application to replace the centralized services that they already use with a decentralized one with the absolute minimum amount of trade-offs possible. And ideally, a benefit that actually helps their their their, their business use case. And so that's what, what it all amounts to. I mean, a good, a good way of looking at this is MetaMask right now, it's a bit in your face, so you have this thing on the on the browser, but it's significantly better than literally running, say, like a blockchain in your browser and making calls to that thing. Because that's just an absurd obstruction of technology in the face of a user. We've gotten it down to a Chrome extension, so you just have to click a button every now and then. And that's pretty nice. But we can do much, much better. At the end of the day, you should never see anything to do with a blockchain in your user experience. You should just have your user experience and be able to rely on whatever the promise is that the application gives you and you can if you really need to inspect the source code to see that it's using these APIs and these protocols in a way that you can trust. The same way that we have all this interesting stuff to do secure transport, secure messaging, and secure, you know, distribution of web assets, which is itself exceedingly complicated and interesting and involves all kind of crypto, but all a user sees is a little green lock in their URL bar that says this site is secure. That's all they need to see. So I think at the end of the day, that's that's what blockchain, all of this stuff that we're working on will amount to, is just you know a little green lock that lets you do something new, and that's it. That's at the user level. the the actual market incentives that will just de- that will decide what kinds of products and businesses get built, that's a whole different question.
0: Yeah.
2: But in terms of the
1: user experience, yeah, just a little green lock, I think.
2: So I like what's that. the dream? Then? Like like that's that's like, yeah. I mean, you've 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 outlined a future from a user experience standpoint, but what's the dream? From a societal impact what's what's uh what's the ideology driving you
1: yeah I think that I I don't think I necessarily subscribe in the same way that others do to this decentralization movement in general for all things I think that that's a really nice direction to head in but I don't pretend that that is the direction that, that that's the end state that we're gonna arrive at it's kind of like saying this particular like, way in which society should operate, if it's like socialism, would be this beautiful end state where everyone wins out. But when you put it into practice, you realize all these weird situations that occur because of human behavior that doesn't really make it work. I don't think that it's worthwhile to say that I'm like a decentralization maximalist and that's the way the world should be because it's just impractical to make real large societal, societal changes with that kind of mindset. I think the mindset that I have is that. This is a technology which introduces a fundamental new concept. You can now move value around without a middleman. That's basically that's, that's the only thing it really provides. And so now that we can do that, what types of situations exist in society where the middleman can very easily get cut out in a way that doesn't really disturb human behavior? And let's just replace those things with better technology. And when those things get replaced, there will be new businesses which can emerge because of it. For example. The most basic example is that with state channels or most even better example is that with a blockchain now there's this notion of a miner. That's a new type of business that never existed before, but now people can do that and they can make money and you can you know, you can basically make a living from that kind of new behavior that exists in the world. And so and so businesses will begin to do that. So as we build the technology to get rid of basically not necessarily rent seeking is probably the wrong term, but Businesses that exist in society that could easily be removed by via just better technology, we'll replace them with new kinds of businesses, which others will then fill in with different companies that are, address the market demand for it. And then we'll just take a step forward, we'll do a small iteration forward in where society is at. But by no means are we going to build a utopia with all of this. We're just going to slightly change the incentives in a way that makes basically society move slightly better, just because we're getting rid of middlemen that are slow and, bureaucratic and have unnecessary technological delays because they just haven't used the latest technology, more or less. So
2: that's oh, the way I look at it. Middlemen and see if, if, there's, if, they're at, uh, if you think that they're actually going to be fully replaced or only partially replaced by this. Well, I, even, mean, like, yeah, I, think the, I think
1: the bang. way to look at it is, is it's kind of hard to look at it that way because there's not yeah. really a full or partial replacement. Like one way One way to look at it is it would be very nice if we could say Build this global decentralized asset exchange for all assets and completely get rid of the New York Stock Exchange and all kinds of exchanges and just make it a human right that you have the ability to exchange with your other humans. Like, that sounds amazing. That's great. But it's not like that vision kills the company of the New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange is just the collection of humans that currently have a way that business works. But as technology adapts, they're going to slowly migrate over to different things that makes sense based on the technology. So, you know, and this will take a long time. Presently, we're thinking, okay, well, we, we can use this technology to digitally wrap existing securities and trade them over the blockchain protocol, which will maybe be easier for people to access, but, you know, arguably still be slower than just the existing rails that exist in Wall Street, for example, but at least it'll be more open. And so what they're gonna do is they're gonna just slowly adapt to that and build things that bridge into that system. But the actual existing company of the New York Stock Exchange won't die. It'll, the point I'm making is it's unrealistic to think that we're going to change society in a fundamental, like, anarch, anarchy kind of way. It's more so we're slightly changing the incentives that will lead to new businesses that emerge, and we're just pushing society forward slowly, one step at a time. I think it's just a better mental model because it, it leads to more realistic outcomes.
2: Yeah, and you also don't want to be perceived as a threat. <laughs> like, JP, yeah. will set up their own coin, so we want that. We want the those people to start playing with this stuff, using it, seeing how, how it could be integrated. And while it might be their own chain and their own coin, at least it's a, a step in a direction where they're going, hey, we need
0: to probably adopt this. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's, none of this is getting rid of a middleman. It's changing the middleman to be something that's fundamentally different. And, they, and it, Like, say, for instance, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is maybe... Um, changing the middleman from a bank, a, a small cabal of people with heavily heavily biased incentives, to the miners to verify transactions, who are playing a fair game, and it's yeah. very very, very difficult, very very difficult to co-opt. And they're also, and, and these things are run by software, run by math, or so on and so forth, that are also difficult to you remove the greed associated with the verification of transactions or ability to censor. And so you're just you're you're moving these middlemen into something that's more distributed, distributed or fair, in the context where that makes more sense, or where you would want something like that, where people can't yeah. arbitrarily make decisions that affect a bunch of people based on a small desire or whim.
1: Yeah, I think an important thing to, like, on, on that note to to mention is that it's it's creating new incentives that lead to new types of businesses that can fill in the gaps um, that maybe didn't exist before because they were just completely locked out. For example. It, it's, I can't really list an asset in the New York Stock Exchange right now. It's like impractical. But yeah. if we had all these protocols, then yeah, I could easily just like throw one in there and it'd just be an open protocol. However, at the moment, I can't do that, right? So I think the way to look at it is if we do this, we open up the possibility for new businesses to come in. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be this decentralized, purely distributed group of people. They'll probably still be centralized in the way that we have like pretty centralized miners. And in you know, the Lightning Network, for example, and in most state channel networks, they'll probably be large centralized hubs. But that's not a problem. Just because it does not everything in the entire stack is distributed in a perfectly even way. The difference is that we have basically the equality of opportunity for everybody to be able to participate in this new model and the best businesses will still win out. It's kind of like decentralization in some ways is kind of it's slightly like approximated this equal equal outcome kind of idea. but that's not what it represents. It's just equal opportunity in, in, in the sense that new businesses will emerge that anyone can participate in instead of being locked out by gatekeepers, but it doesn't mean that they're going to win. There's still going to be businesses that will dominate those new kind of vectors to make money. And I, I think that's good. I think that's a good way for capitalism to kind of keep moving forward using this technology. So,
0: I agree. Um, I think it's also a great way to kind of wrap up this episode. Is, are there any questions or, or, or things that you would have liked us to discuss that we didn't get around to asking you about?
1: Um, No, I think I'm good. From my point of view, our team at L4 and with the Counterfactual Project, our main mission right now is just keep getting this protocol to be simple and easy to understand and have tangible entry points for developers to, to, to look at it and build on it with. And so I just hope that we can get any feedback, we can have people looking at it and telling us what they think, and hopefully we can just keep moving forward as a team to make it so that more people that care about this stuff actually take an action item and, and, and use it as soon as possible uh separately with eth global the other thing that we're working on we're actively running hackathons across the world every few months we have cape town in april we're going to be doing uh waterloo later on this year new york boston india and so if you ever want to just kind of hack on ethereum related stuff then you know feel free to come to our hackathons they're free for everybody so it's just simply a matter of kind of having fun building stuff on the
0: technology I'll back that up. I've uh, been to a few of them. I, I swear by them. They're wonderful events, and I will continue to go to them and, and, and contribute. Um, awesome. and how can people reach out? How can people uh, get a hold yeah, of you?
1: I'm on Twitter at Liam I. Uh, I also happily accept emails, uh, Liam at L4V.io. Or if you just want to chat quickly, we have a chat on Counterfactual. It's just chat.counterfactual.com. And you can chat with me there.
0: I'm pretty widely accessible. Outstanding. And uh, listeners, if you enjoyed this, click the subscribe button, click the like button, share it on Twitter. Um, you can find us as a podcast on Hashing It Out Pod on Twitter, um, at Corpetty. And Colin is at Colin Couchet, C-O-L-L-I-N-C-U-S-C-E. Thanks a lot, Liam. We appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it was Liam,
2: awesome. thanks. It's great. Thank you.